You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Mark 15 is where we're going to be. Mark 15. So if you want to grab a Bible, uh, turn to Mark 15. That would really serve you. So if you'll do that, that would be great. Mark chapter 15. If you need a Bible, um, you should have one underneath every three or four seats. You should be able to find one. So make sure you grab one, have one out, and open on your lap. Okay, let me, let me start with a question this morning. I want you to imagine I slide a piece of paper in front of you, and on the top of that piece of paper is this question. What is the world's greatest problem? And just think about how you would answer that. What is the world's greatest problem? Now, there's a lot of problems in the world, right? I mean, just take a second to think about the complexities that is life in a fallen world, and there's all sorts of problems. Some people might put on the top of that list poverty. There's millions of people right now living just destitute, trying to, to scratch out their next meal. So, so maybe poverty is it. Some people might write education, that, that what we really need is people to be better educated. You know, some people write, might write stability or like, like some sort of peace. Like just looking across the world right now, there is a lot of instability, isn't there? Like, you just look at the craziness that is the Middle East. Who knows what China and Russia is up to, right? I mean, who knows? It's an it's a unstable place. So, so maybe peace and stability is that thing. Maybe it's disease and sickness. When, when those things affect you, they hurt down deep, don't they? So, so maybe that, that would be it. Just imagine, what would you put at the top of that list? And it's as deep as all of those problems that I just mentioned are, and they are problems, right? They are issues in, in a fallen world. But as deep as all of those problems are, the Bible is very clear that they are all symptoms of a deeper problem. They aren't the deepest problem. That they are all symptoms, but there is a big, deep, down low source problem. And here's how the Bible would describe that big top of the list. What is the world's greatest problem? The world's greatest problem would go like this in the Bible. Spiritual alienation. This is the world's greatest problem. Now seeing that can be hard, can it? Especially when you're in the midst of life in a fallen world and when fallenness kind of interacts with your life, when sickness interacts with your life, when poverty interacts with your life, when all of these sort of things interact with you, it's hard to see with clarity that our spiritual alienation is the biggest problem. Spiritual alienation. It is the source problem of every other problem out there. It's Isaiah 59 two. It's our sin has separated us from God. It's Romans 5, that because of our sin, we are now alienated from God. We are now enemies of God. There is a hostility that exists between us and God. It's Ephesians chapter 2, that we are now objects of God's wrath. The hostility isn't just us toward God, but because of our sin, the hostility also goes the other way, God toward us. This is the greatest problem in the universe, spiritual alienation. Now, let me just go back to the beginning. We've started the last several sermons all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And let me go back there. I want you to turn back to Genesis 3 if, you've got it, uh, if you can there. And I want to point out one thing that we see in the opening chapter. So let me just kind of do a quick recap, and then we're going to get to the end of Genesis 3. But take a second to think about what the Bible is showing us in Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis 1, 1, God creates all that is. And then in the rest of Genesis 1, he begins ordering that creation. He's, he's separating light from dark, land from water. He's making things inhabitable. And then on the sixth day, he creates man. The climax of creation, this big moment where he creates man, he puts man and woman in paradise. 
And he gives them the command to, to work it and to keep it. Here's a garden for you to work and to keep. Now, now love me, worship me, obey me in this garden. And, and they're doing that. And life is going great in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the Hebrews had this word to describe Genesis 1 and 2. They, they used the word shalom. And here's what it would signify. Everything is as it should be. Everything is in harmony with one another. So you've got man and woman, they're in the garden, and they are relating perfectly to creation. Now imagine that. Like they've got a garden, and they're tending and working the garden, and they're not fighting against thorns and thistles. That would be a big blessing if you're a gardener, wouldn't it? The creation is not working against them. There's no such thing as disease and sickness yet. All of those things are still in the distant future for them. So, so everything is as it should be. They are perfectly relating to creation. But not just are they perfectly relating to creation, they're perfectly relating to one another. Man and woman, listen to this, man and woman are married and there's no tiffs. There's no arguments. There's no headbutting. There's no dishonoring. There's no shaming. There's no strife. There's no war. There's no murder. There's none of any of that. They are perfectly relating with one another. Humanity is at peace with humanity. But it's, it's not just man and woman at peace with creation and in tune with creation, in tune with one another. They're also, listen to this, and most importantly, they are in tune with God. They are living like God has designed them to live. They are living in such a way where there is unhindered access to God, unhindered intimacy with God. I love how, how the first couple of chapters of Genesis describe God with his people. It says that he is walking with them in the cool of the day. Can you imagine that? You've got paradise, this garden. You're in the garden. It's perfect. Everything is as it should be, and you've got God walking with you in the cool of the day. This is, this is Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2. This is life as it should be. This is shalom working its way, you know, way out. This is unhindered intimacy with God. There's no alienation. There's no obstacles to God. They've got unfettered, unhindered enjoyment of God going on. And then you get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we've talked about this extensively over the last few weeks. Our first parents eat the forbidden fruit. In that moment, they are rebelling against God's good rule and reign in their life. They eat the forbidden fruit. They sin against God. And in that moment, shalom breaks. Anti-shalom is now introduced. Now they are not in peace with, with creation. Now they are not at peace with one another. And now most importantly, they are not at peace with God. They have a deep, serious problem with God. And as Genesis 3 goes on, God comes and finds them in the midst of their sin with fruit still coming out of their mouth. He comes and finds them, catches them red-handed in their sin. He curses the serpent, the woman, then the man. And then this is what you find. This is the deepest problem that sin gives us. This is the most, the most difficult thing we've got to deal with in terms of sin. Look at the last part of Genesis chapter three, the last two verses, 23 and 24. This is the take your breath away result of our first parent, Adam and Eve, their sin against God. Verse 23 says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, sent him out of the Garden, they're no longer in paradise, to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, He drove the man out, and at the east, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Welcome to spiritual alienation and our deepest problem. We have been driven not only out of paradise, but out of the presence of God. Now, when we're talking about spiritual alienation, it's, it's telling us two massive things. 
One, that we have sinned against God. And two, that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is just. And those two things don't get along very well. That because God is holy and he is just, he cannot coexist with our sin. He can't allow our sin to go unpunished. He's got to do something about our sin. And alienation, spiritual alienation, being driven out of his presence is the result of that sin and his righteousness. This is what we're seeing in the opening pages of the Bible when we're driven out of the Garden of Eden after our first sin. Okay, now, if you're, uh, just imagine you're, you're reading the Bible for the first time and you get to the end of Genesis 3 where, where God creates everything. He is presented as ultimately good. He creates everything. He puts man and woman in the garden to relate to him perfectly. They rebel against him. Therefore, God kicks them out because of his righteousness and justice. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you get to the end of Genesis 3, what are you thinking in that moment? What are you thinking? If you're reading the Bible for the first time and you come to this moment where they're driven out of the garden, here's what you would be thinking. Oh no, what's gonna happen to these people? That they've been created for, for unhindered enjoyment of God, but now God has driven them out of his presence because of their sin. What's gonna happen to them? And the next few chapters show us exactly what's gonna happen. And, and, and you know, in a summary statement, spiritual alienation leads to the, just the absolute disintegration of humanity. Spiritual alienation always leads to disintegration. So you just play the story forward. You get to Genesis chapter four, the next chapter. Cain and Abel, both, uh, they both bring this offering to God, but, Cain, but God rejects Cain's offering and he accepts Abel's. And Cain doesn't like that. He's got jealousy and envy going in his heart. And by uh, verse four of chapter four, Cain looks over at his, at his brother. And the Bible says he raises himself against his brother and he murders his brother. Now, isn't that amazing? If you're reading the Bible and you're seeing chapter three, they're driven out of the presence of God. And four verses later, spiritual alienation leads to murder and strife. Are you, are you seeing that? This is the disintegration that spiritual alienation brings. And you just keep reading in the biblical narrative, you get to chapter six and things just keep going downhill. In chapter six, here's God's summary statement of human beings. Genesis chapter six, verse five. He says this, the Bible says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, so here's spiritual alienation leading to disintegration. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, like every motive, everything he's doing, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What we're seeing in the first Three chapters after spiritual alienation, after Genesis 3, is the absolute unraveling of humanity. The absolute disintegration that results from spiritual alienation. Okay, now, now let me just tie one more thing together here. In the Old Testament, it's interesting that you see this idea of spiritual alienation reinforced in a lot of different ways. Like as if, for instance, you see this idea that, that there is an announcement in the Old Testament that sin has severed the relationship, that sin has really produced separation between us and God. You see it in the ceremonial laws. God saying, no, if you're gonna come to me, you better wash like this, you better eat like this, you better dress like this, you better sacrifice like this. All of those laws are meant to tell us something. We can't just go to God in the Old Testament. You can't just go to God then. You've got to come to God a very certain way, jumping through all of these hoops if you want to get to God. There's all of these obstacles now between you and God. 
Or, or think about the, the whole setup of the temple. You know, it's interesting when, when, um, when David decides to build the temple, God gives these elaborate instructions as to how the temple is going to be built. It's chapter upon chapter of this thing needs to be this long and this tall. It needs to be laid out like this. It's elaborate details. And if you want to just sum up that the, you know, the design of the temple, you could maybe just sum it up and kind of get to the core of it like this. There was this massive curtain that would separate kind of the outer courts from this inner place called the, the holy place. So only certain people could get behind this, this one curtain out here to get into this, this inner room called the holy place. Only certain people could come there. But then when you got into this holy place that only some people could come into, then you had this other curtain. And this next curtain separated the holy place where a few people could get to, to the actual presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the, where the glory of God was, where the presence of God was. You had this, this really thick, it was 30 feet you know, tall, 60 feet wide. They say it was an inch thick. It would take 100 priests to hang this curtain, this massive curtain that would separate the, the, the few people who could get inside the temple to the holy place would separate those people from the actual presence of God. And it's just interesting that, that only one person, the high priest, he's the most holy man in all of Israel. This one person on one day of the year, one person, one day of the year, only that person could go into that holy room. That most holy place, the holy of holies. One person, one time of, of year. On the day of atonement, he would go in to make sacrifices for the people of, of Israel. But they were so terrified for this man that tradition says they would tie a rope around the guy's ankle just in case he didn't make it in there. They could drag the guy out. Now, now what is all of that saying? All of that is reinstilling and showing and announcing to us that our sin really has separated us from God. That our sin really has produced spiritual alienation. All of those pictures, all of those things are meant to show us, reconvince us that we actually have a problem with God because of our sin and it has separated us from God. That we are spiritually alienated from God. That we can't just relate to God now. We can't just go to God now. We can't just move into God's presence now. That there is a new day because of Genesis 3. And there is separation, real separation that exists. Now, if spiritual alienation is our greatest problem, here's what it means. It means that our greatest need is reconciliation. If spiritual alienation is your greatest problem, it's my greatest problem, if it's the world's greatest problem, what that means for the world is reconciliation is our greatest need. This is the question of the Bible. From the moment of him kicking the people of Israel, Adam and Eve, out of his presence, the question of the Bible is, how will God ever let someone back in? How are we going to regain paradise and more importantly, the presence of God? How is that ever going to happen? How's it going to happen for you? How's it going to happen for them? How's it going to happen for us? How is God ever going to let us back into his presence? Welcome to the good news of Mark 15. Here is where Mark 15 comes into play. Now I've said this over and over over the last few weeks. That when you're seeing the life of Jesus, when you're reading the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you are seeing in Jesus's life, and in particular the last week of his life, in the last few hours of his life, you are seeing the raw material that makes up the good news of Jesus. 
These scenes are showing us why the gospel is such good news. It's the raw material that makes all of these things up. Last week I said that if you, know, if you think of the gospel in terms of this massively huge light that's shining down into the world, what, what the life of Jesus, in particular the last week of Jesus does, is it holds a diamond up in front of that light where the, the, this massive beam of light is broken into these rays where we can look at these individual ray, rays in particular. We can look at, a few weeks ago, what the guilt of our sin produces. We can look at what we looked at last week, what the shame of our sin does and how God addresses it. But this week, it's something different. This week, he is addressing, Mark is addressing, this scene in Jesus' life is addressing our spiritual alienation and our deep need for reconciliation. This is where you pick it up in verse 33 of Mark 15. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what makes the good news such great news. This is foundational stuff for the good news of Jesus. And we're about to see that Jesus' worst moment is going to be our best moment. So, so here it is, verse 33. And when the sixth hour, okay, now the sixth hour would be noon in a Jewish way of keeping time. So, you know, it started at 6 a.m. They counted from there. So the sixth hour would be noon. When the sixth hour or noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This passage in general, verse 34 in particular, is showing us how it is that we can be reconciled to God. It's showing us the remedy for our spiritual alienation. This cry where, where Jesus, God the Son, looks up at God the Father and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry right there is the best news that we have ever heard. So let me just break it into three parts. There's a who, there's a what, and there's a why. So let's start with the who. There is a subject to the cry. There is a who in verse 34. When Jesus is crying out, he is crying out to someone. He is addressing someone with the question of why have you forsaken me? He's, he's talking to someone. The question is, who is he talking to? Answer, he is talking to God the Father. The, the who, the subject is God the Father. So the God the Father in this passage, in this verse 34, God the Father is doing something. He's up to something. He is acting here in this passage. The question is, what is he doing? What is God the Father doing in this verse? Answer, God the Father is forsaking God the Son. That's what God the Father's doing. He is absolutely forsaking him. Now, I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, I do not think that the records of time or even of eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish than this one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if, if you're going to get a sense of the deep anguish that's being expressed in this passage, you first have to get a sense of the deep intimacy in the Trinity. 
among the triune God. If you're going to get a sense of the anguish, you got to start with intimacy. So let me just first put it in picture form for you. Imagine Laura and I go on a date to downtown Fort Worth. And we get out of the car, we're walking to the restaurant, and in the middle of this walk to the restaurant, a random guy comes up to me and says, Rodney, I am forsaking you. Now, first of all, that's weird, isn't it? I mean, that's just flat out like, somebody call the police, this is awkward. But like my second question would be, now, what, what is your name again? Uh, let, let me start there, right? So in that moment, that would have absolutely no effect on me. It would produce no grief in my soul. Why? Because there is no intimacy with this man. I have no idea who the guy is. But now imagine this scene. I, Laura and I, we just got out of the car. We're walking to the restaurant, doing, you know, this date thing. We're, we're going and eating and going to enjoy a night together. And all of a sudden, Laura looks at me and says, Rodney, I'm forsaking you. I'm abandoning you. I'm going to turn my back on you. Now, in that moment, you would be picking me up off the floor. Now, why is that? It's, it's because there is some sort of a connection between the depth of intimacy and the intensity of anguish when you're abandoned. Are you seeing that? There's a connection between the depth of intimacy on one hand and the sort of intensity of anguish that abandonment produces. So a random stranger produces no anguish. But Laura, because she's special, we've been married for 12 years, I love this lady. If she abandons me, it's, it's a whole different story. Now, let's just apply this to God the Father and God the Son. You've got to ratchet up the entire relationship. It's not just that they've been married for a few years. It's that for all eternity, there has been unhindered access to one another. For all eternity, there has been a nearness and a closeness and a tenderness. For all eternity, they have existed face to face with one another. And then all of a sudden, in this moment, the, the, you know, the depth of intimacy is unimaginable. It's unexplainable how, how deep the intimacy goes. But in this moment, God the Father looks at God the Son and says, I'm turning my back on you. You're abandoned, forsaken, rejected, shunned, cast out. That's what's going on in this moment. Now, now listen to J.I. Packer, theologian, author. Listen to him describe this sort of anguish. He says it this way. He says, on the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship. He says, all of these things were taken from him. And in their place, in, in, in the place of that, was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. The physical pain, though great, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual, and what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself. That's the sort of depth of agony that Jesus is experiencing. Unmatched, unexplainable intimacy, broken, producing unexplainable and unspeakable anguish. He's forsaken by, by God the Father. Now here is the question. Jesus asks it. Not because he's wanting to know. He knows. He's wanting us to know. He's quoting, he's quoting Psalms 22 and he says, but why? 
God, God the Father, why are you forsaking me, God the Son? Why are you doing this? Now, let me give you two responses. We could spend years here, but let me just give you two summary statements that might help in answering the question, why is God the Father forsaking God the Son? Why has he abandoned him, forsaken him, rejected him, cast him out, shunned him? Why is he doing that? Answer one. Answer one is because we are seeing something about God here. Why is, is God the Father doing this? To show us something about God. That, that's the reason. To show us something about God. This is the biggest reason. Like all things, all things are about the glory of God. All things are about the display of God. And here are two attributes of God that we're seeing with just unbelievable clarity in this moment of God the Father forsaking God the Son. What we're seeing, first of all, we're seeing God's justice his righteousness, his holiness. We are seeing God, listen to this, we are seeing God's verdict of sin. We're seeing that play out right now, right here in this passage. God is saying in this moment, this is what I think about sin. This is how my justice deals with sin. See, in Romans 6.23, when God says that the penalty of sin is death, we're seeing that statement play out in story form right here. We are seeing that it's actually true. That the God's penalty, his payment for sin, it really is death. It's a death like this, this bloody, this bruising. It's this sort of a death. We're seeing God's justice over sin. Now, let me just give, um, let me just take this one step further. You know, when the Bible talks about hell, it uses a lot of imagery to talk about it. I mean, all the imagery just paints such a horrible picture of what hell will be. And although we don't know all the ins and outs of it, you know, we just know pictures of it really in the Bible. I think what you're seeing in this passage is the clearest kind of substance of what hell will be like. And if you want to know what, what it is, what the penalty of sin is, when God says you're going to die spiritually, eternally, what that means, I think this is the picture of what it means. It means you're going to be forever enduring e eternally. God forsakenness. That, that's what hell is. It's God, for, it's God removing his presence for all eternity, all things good for all eternity. That's what hell is. This is a picture of God's justice over sin. But we're not just seeing a picture of God's justice play out in this passage, in the moment of God forsaking God the Son. We're also seeing his deep love for sinners. You're seeing how much God the Father loves sinners like you and me. I love, again, how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, you can measure the, the height of God's love by the depth of his grief. Hear that again. If you want to measure how much God loves you, the height of his love, he's saying this, you can measure by that by the depth of his grief right now in this passage. Maybe we could say it this way. In, the, in this moment, reading this passage, when you're hearing God the Son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What every son and daughter ought to be hearing is this. This is how much I love you. For every one of us in the room, when we're hearing this cry from Jesus, we ought to be hearing God the Father say, do you see how much I love you? Can you get a sense of this? I'm willing to forsake my son so I can have you as a son. That's how much I love you, individually, personally, particularly. That's how much I love you. 
See, what's on display in this moment at the cross is both the justice and the love of God. I love how theologians oftentimes put it. At the cross, both the love of God and the justice of God, they have a way of coming together and kissing at the cross. That's what you're seeing there. It shows us God. But here's the second reason for this moment. Reason one is to show us God, and reason two is to save through substitution. Reason two, that the why is to save through substitution. Why is Jesus being forsaken? Why is he being abandoned? So that you can be saved. That's the reason. So that I can be saved, so that I can re be redeemed, so that I can be brought in. That's the reason. I, I love how 1 Peter 3.18 puts it. It puts it in a statement. For Christ suffered once for sin. Christ, he suffered once. And it was tragic suffering. It was deep suffering. He suffered once for sin. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us. Now, why did he do that? The reason is this, so that he could bring us to God. That's why he suffered. He was put to death in the flesh and then made alive in the spirit. Why did he go through all of that? So that you and I could be redeemed and rescued. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing salvation through substitution. We're seeing first and foremost, Jesus in our place. This is what we're seeing in the moment of him being forsaken. Here's what you've got to know about this forsakenness. It's the forsakenness that you deserved. See, in this moment, God took all of our sin, all of humanity's sin, all the sin of every son and daughter of his. He put all of that sin into this big bottle in concentrate form. And in this moment on the cross, when he turns his back from his son, he pours all of that God forsakenness down onto the head of his son. This is what's happening in this moment. It's Jesus taking all of our alienation, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our separation. It's Jesus taking all of that. It's Jesus being crushed by all of that. It is Isaiah 53 in this moment right here, Jesus, God the Son, is being crushed for our iniquities. That's what's happening. But it's not just Jesus in our place. Here's the best news of the gospel. is It's us in Jesus' place. It's, it's he gets what we deserve, and then we get what he deserves. Now, is that not good news for us this morning? He gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. So he gets crushed by God the Father, and we get received by God the Father. He gets the cold wrath of God, we get the warm welcome of the Father. He gets the frown of God, we get the smile of God. He gets abandoned, we get adopted. He gets rejected, we get accepted. He gets pushed out of the presence of God, we get pulled into the presence of God. He gets spiritual alienation, we get intimacy with God. He gets our shame, we get his honor. He gets our guilt, we get his innocence. He in this moment gets absolutely torn asunder and we get put back together. In this moment, he gets our curse and in this moment, we get all of the blessings that are due Jesus. That's what's happening right now in this moment on the cross. It's Jesus in our place. He's showing us we are saved through substitution. He gets everything we deserve. We get everything he deserves. Now you're seeing this play out in verse 38. You're seeing what all of this secures for us. You're seeing that we actually get to stand in the place of Jesus before God the Father. Now look at verse 38. You're seeing in verse 38, us getting everything that Jesus deserved, 
What we're getting right here in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Now, do you remember that curtain? You remember the old, the, the old Testament, the temple? You remember this curtain 30 feet you know, high, 60 feet wide, an inch thick, 100 priests to hang that would separate the holy place from the most holy place where God dwelled? Do you remember that curtain of separation? That, that oh no curtain? That, oh, that, cur- that, that curtain that you come behind that, you better have a rope tied to your foot, that curtain? He's saying that curtain right there is done. That you no longer need that curtain. See, this is what it means that you get to stand in the place of Jesus. There's no more curtains of separation. That there's no more spiritual alienation. All that's left for us because of Jesus in our place is is reconciliation. All that's left for us is intimacy. The curtain is ripped to shreds. He is announcing there is a new day that is dawned. A new day. You get everything that Jesus deserves. You now have intimacy back. Do you remember that scene in Genesis 1 and 2? God walking with his people in the cool of the day. He's saying, that, that's, that's where you are. You're, you're back there. You're back in my presence. You, you are back there. Now, let me just kind of land the plane and wrap this up by uh, saying this. That good news, now listen to this. I want you to look at me right in the eye. That good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen to this, it has the power to change your life. That good news has the power to absolutely, radically, forever change your life. Look at verse 39. This good news of Jesus has the ability, has the power to absolutely alter, fundamentally change everything about you. Verse 39. And when the centurion... Now, just get your mind on what a centurion is. A centurion would have been a common soldier who would have proved his worth in battle. So this guy's a proved man. Like, he is a battle-tested man. There is still in this guy's spine, there is ice in his veins. He has proved that he can do the job. He has likely witnessed hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions. Been the one, a centurion would be the one who was leading all of this. He would be in charge of the death squad who would put people to death. That centurion is who we're talking about here. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, here's what this battle-tested, steel in his spine, ice in his veins centurion said. Truly this man was the son of God. Now, it's interesting. The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters. And this is the climatic point in the Gospel of Mark. This is what the entire Gospel of Mark is all about. Mark 1.1 announces the theme. Jesus is the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism in Mark 1, the Father announces who Jesus is. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The demons in Mark 1, they know who Jesus is. This is the Son of God. But in this moment in Mark 15, it's the first time in all of history where a human being has spoken these words. This man, Jesus, he is the Son of God. It's, it's the climatic point. It is the point. It's the climatic moment in the Gospel of Mark. It is the place the Gospel of Mark is trying to take 
you and trying to take me, that when we look upon our dying Savior who died in our place for our sin, it is meant to produce this in each of our hearts. This man is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's what it's meant to produce. And that right there, him seeing the death of Jesus, his absolute God-forsakenness in this moment, it absolutely changed his life. In that moment, it opened his eyes, it melted his heart, and in that moment, he bowed in submission to the king of the universe. It has that sort of power to change lives. Now, let me just apply it in a couple of ways, and we'll, uh, we'll finish. So, so maybe you're in here this morning, and you don't know Jesus. And maybe you're in the category this morning of when you think about your sin and your past and all that is in your past, all the sin that litters it and fills it, maybe you would think, probably much like the centurion thought, there is no way I could be saved. Some people might be able to, but me, I am de- I've, I'm too far gone. I've seen too many deaths. My heart is too hard. My heart is too callous. There's no way God could save me. There's no way grace is big enough for me. Let this centurion, let, let, let this centurion encourage you this morning. If God can save him, I'll promise he can save you. If God can melt his heart, I promise he can melt yours. If God can break through his hardness, I promise he can break through your hardness. It doesn't matter what you've done, how many deaths like this guy are in your past. Here is the great news about the good news of Jesus. It doesn't matter how far and how fast your sin has run. Grace will always run faster and further. Track it down, cover and cleanse it. That's the great news of the gospel. And so this morning, if you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus, just like this centurion, you can leave saved today. That's the great news of the gospel. But, but maybe you're in here and, and you're thinking this, well, well, that's already happened for me. Like I, I've already had this life to death moment. I've already had this moment of turning from my sin and turning to Jesus. I've already had this moment like the centurion where I recognize this is the son of God. And I've bowed in submission to that. Maybe you're there and you're asking, well, what is, what is this passage, what does it hold for me this morning if, if that's true? Let, let me just try to reacquaint us this morning. That the gospel is not just the power of God to save you from your past, from like the past penalty of your sin. It is that, but it's not just that. And the gospel is not just the good news that God will one day in your future free you finally and fully from the presence of sin. It is that, but it's not just that. See, the good news of Jesus is not just a past reality for a Christian, and it's not just a future reality for a Christian. The good news of Jesus is also a present reality. Like right now to give us help in our current everyday life. Like right now. And let me just kind of maybe work at this from two angles. I'm going to put up Hebrews 13 for you. And look at, this just a really interesting passage where the author of Hebrews is connecting something that I don't think we would naturally connect on our own. Look at what he says here. Hebrews 13 verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people like you and I, and he's saying, keep your life free from greed and inordinate desire for wealth and material things. Keep your life free from that. Don't be clutching on to money. 
Don't act as if money is a God. Don't act as if money can give you the deepest needs of your heart. Don't act as if the security you crave is going to be found in something as fickle as money. Don't act like that. Don't don't go there. Keep your life free from the love of money. And then he says this, and be content with what you have. Be, Be content. Be satisfied right now in your life with what you have. Not just money, but in, your, in power, in, in job, in your status in life, in every area of your life. He says, don't, don't, don't be greedy. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's the command. But now watch the means of that. See, the question is, as a believer, how are we ever going to do that? You, it's not like you can just wake up one day and say, you know what? Greed is no more. It's gone. I'm letting go of it. It doesn't work that way. There's a means to this. And look at the means of being free from the love of money and being content. If you want contentment, if you want to be free from greed, if you want to be able to give generously, if you want that, here's the means. Look at what he says here. For he has said, this is the means. If you want want to be able to live with the command, you've got to know and believe this, he's saying. You've got to know this. God's saying this to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So, so we can confidently this morning say, if you're a son or daughter of God, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do, do you know where greed comes from? Greed is the result of us living like spiritual orphans, like we're still spiritually alienated from God as opposed to sons and daughters of God. That's why we lock our hands around money. That's why we try to demand that money give us what only God can give us. It's because we feel like spiritual orphans. And if we're ever going to unlock our hands from money, here's what it requires. For us to know deep down in our bones that Jesus was forsaken so that you will never, ever, 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 for all eternity, ever be forsaken again. This is, we've got to know that, that he was abandoned so that we will forever be adopted. We will forever have the smile of God. And it's only when you know that, that you'll be free from the love of money. Let me apply it this way. How about to suffering? The truth is that for many of us in the room, we are in the midst of intense suffering right now. And here's, you know, for the rest of us, that that's not us right now, just buckle up because it's coming for all of us, right? And so let's just take a a person this moment that you walked in and you're discouraged. Man, life is just squeezing you to death. You're beat up. You just feel wounded and bloodied and bruised. And it's just, life is hard. It's just not living up to your expectations. It's not going the way you want it to go. What what do you do as a Christian in the middle of that? What what do you do there? And you know, when, when we're in the middle of these moments, the question why is never far from our lips, is it? The question of, the same question Jesus asked, God, why are you doing this? That's never far from us. It's always close to the surface in these sort of moments. Now, listen to what I'm about to say here. That question is perfectly legitimate to ask as a son and daughter of God. God, what are you doing in this moment? God, will you show these things to me? But listen, it's important that as you're asking that question, that you are looking at the cross of Christ. Now, ask yourself, what are you going to be learning as you look at the cross of Christ? What are you going to be learning as you're asking the question, God, why are you doing this? What are you going to be learning as you ask that question of God all the while looking at the cross? What are you going to be learning? Let me tell you what you're not going to learn. Looking at the cross, you're not going to learn everything that God is up to in this moment. He's not going to give you in the cross a bullet point list of everything that he's doing in this moment of your life. That's not what you're going to find as you look to the cross. But here's what you will find as you look to the cross in the middle of your suffering. 
you're going to learn some of the reasons that it isn't. Now hear that. This is the most important thing for you to know. The most important thing for you to know is not all the reasons why you're going through it, but some of the reasons why you're, the reasons that it's not, the reasons that it isn't. And here's what the cross of Christ is always going to tell us. Listen to this. It's not because God's forsaking you. Hear that. If you're in the room this morning and suffering has just grabbed you, know this, be reminded of this, be reconvinced of this. It's not because God does not love you. It's not because God does not care for you. It's not because God has abandoned you. It's not because God has forsaken you. It's not because God has turned his back on all plans for your life. That is not the reason. That's what the cross of Christ tells us. All of these reasons why it's not. We know this when we look to the cross asking that question. We know that it can't be those things. It can't be because he's turned his back on us, because he turned his back on Jesus in our place. We know it can't be those things. Now, I was reminded of this just here recently. Um, You know, Hannah had kind of skinned her knees. She was riding her scooter. I went to get a Band-Aid. I was trying to be kind of Dr. Dad, fixing her up. And I just grab her leg, and she goes crazy. I mean, she just is beside herself. And I look at her in the eye, knowing that to doctor her little leg up is going to require a little bit more pain in the short term. I knew this as a dad. And I'm looking at her, and I'm saying, and I can't, by the way, I can't explain all that to her. She doesn't get all that yet. She's hysterical right now. And I look at her and I just say this, Hannah, do you trust me? I'm your dad. I'll never forget this moment. She looked back and said, no, I don't trust you. (laughs) And is that not so often how we deal with God in the midst of our suffering? No, I don't trust you. You're killing me. You've got to be forsaking me. And here's what the cross of Christ tells us, that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of everything in us feeling forsaken by God, the cross of Christ tells us we're not forsaken. The cross of Christ tells us we're not being abandoned, that we have a God who loves us and cares for us. I'm going to end with this. Puritans, um, they wrote this prayer called Wave Upon Wave of Grace. And here's what I hope this morning is for you. This is what I hope as you looked in Mark 15, as you look at the cross, as you look at at Jesus being forsaken by God the Father. I hope wave upon wave of grace comes to you. Here's what they said. Here's their prayer for it. Oh God of grace, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul that not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, here it goes, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, and work, teaches me your immeasurable love for me. How great are my privileges in Jesus. Without him, I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him, I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon the Father, God, and friend.
Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him is all love and the rest of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors before me. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Praise be to you for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.